From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. When we talk about innovation, we often focus on disrupting certain industries. But innovation also requires you to embrace personal disruption. Your beliefs will be challenged, your direction will be changed, and your responsibilities will be shifted. Today's guest, Abim Kalawale, has embraced personal disruption through his entire career. Starting out as a lawyer for the SEC, he then pivoted into running the claims business at Northwestern Mutual, and then pivoted again to his current role as VP of Digital Innovation. When I asked him about the winding path he has taken, he said, your career journey is about optionality. You have to keep your options open to maximize the opportunity. But this episode is not just about a BIM story, but rather it's about the classic innovator's dilemma, why large, successful, well-managed companies struggle to adopt new innovations and technologies, even though they see them coming. We also discuss how large companies can use a crisis to force themselves to innovate, how to build a team that can accomplish innovation and not just talk about it, and the necessity to be rapidly adaptable in today's fast-paced society. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Abim, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Thank you, Chuck. It's an absolute pleasure. You know, we've had a chance to chat before and this is it's nice to be able to go deep a little bit. Let me start out with uh, kind of what you're doing today. So you're the VP of Digital Innovation at Northwestern Mutual, but you started out as a securities lawyer and then eventually ran a big part of the claims business before taking on this innovation leadership role. And so from my experience, this is a pretty unusual career path. And I'm curious, did you ever think you'd end up in a role like this when you were sitting there in law school and then working for the SEC? (laughs) Great question, Chuck. Absolutely not. I never thought about this, not one bit. But sitting in the role in which I am, my career journey resonates tremendously with me because it's all about personal disruption. It's been nothing but disruption after disruption. And it's been intentional. Uh, right. So, yeah, I've sit in law school. I didn't know anything about innovation. I just thought I wanted to be a securities lawyer. But as I continued my career, I realized that, you know, uh, the journey, the career journey is about optionality. And it's about thinking about how you can continue to sort of read the tea leaves, even with your own career and make sure you're maximizing the opportunity. So I'm sure we'll get deeper later on, but it's about personal disruption. Okay. So, Abim, you've written about the innovator's dilemma. And you've described it as when an organization focuses all of its attention on its existing customers while skewing breakthroughs to attract new customers, companies that pursue this path risk their relevance and, if left unaddressed over time, jeopardize their very existence. Well, I can't think of a a company or an industry in the life insurance that while today is good, you can imagine this coming. And so how do you approach this innovator's dilemma at Northwestern Mutual? You know, to a certain extent, based on your success, there could be a level of invincibility. Like we've been here before, we've been successful, 
And I'm going to use the word hubris sometimes because you have a model that continues to prove itself and you're successful. Hence, the focus on sustaining innovation. We optimize for certainty. Nothing wrong with that. You have to make sure you polish your existing business model. But you also have to continue to think about the future, the long term, and it really becomes a dilemma about resources. How do you maximize your resources for today to continue to make you strong? But also, how do you think about tomorrow? And it's a thinking about tomorrow that produces that dilemma. And the way we are beginning to approach it, or at least what I've been thinking about and what I've proposed, is how might we have a diversified approach to growth? Think about a diversified investment portfolio, for instance. How might we have, sort of call it speculative innovation portfolio, in addition to your sustaining innovation portfolio? So it's not, it's not, it's not all in one bucket. It's diversification. And that's probably the best way to approach it, to make sure you have some sense of your long term and counter that feeling of invincibility, hubris, or whatever you want to call it. So that's kind of uh, that's the way we're approaching it. And I, I believe it's resonating because uh, leaders recognize the why. Why do we need to think about tomorrow? What got you here may not get you to where you need to be tomorrow. You say that the leaders, that it resonates with them. You know, I've had a chance to work with a lot of big companies, you know, as a supplier, partner, competitor in my early days as Cree, and then even more recently as a consultant. And what I've seen is that while you can get this intellectual buy-in to the problem, that this innovator's dilemma simply prevents that intellectual belief from resulting in the actions to really change the business until a company is forced to by the market. And that could be declining market share, lower profits. It could be reacting to a disruptive new player. Do you think that the mutual insurance industry generally, and then Northwestern Mutual more specifically, do you think you're really facing a crisis enough to drive that change? Or do you think you can change without that crisis? Great, great question, Chuck. Uh, what I would do is point actually to the more recent pandemic. I mean, that's been a wake-up call, whatever industry you're in. Unfortunately, a lot of us have been in a reactive mode. <laughs> and the pandemic is basically saying to us, we got to be proactive. I can think about aspects of our business model that were threatened by the pandemic. And part of my job is to ensure that we can be rapidly adaptable to the exponential changes in consumer behavior. P people don't want you coming to their house. People want a social distance. And if your business model requires that level of contact, you have to be prepared for what's going to be ahead. And we need people, we need leaders who take this as a significant wake-up call for what we need to do. Talking about Northwestern Mutual, for instance, um, and I've said this, and again, it, re it resonates with our leaders. We have an intergenerational compact that we need to keep the company in fighting shape for tomorrow. Again, this is just a you know, wake-up call. My son is 18 years old. We need to make sure we're thinking long past tomorrow and build the foundations for how we can make sure we're not just reactive, but proactive. What comes to mind is I have absolutely no doubt that the crisis and I take this right, I know many people were affected in a negative way, but it's been a blessing for many companies because it forced change, right? You said there was no longer an option. And, and what I found is that that was actually one of the critical characteristics of most innovative companies. They were able to recreate that every day. So what happens though, a year from now, let's hope that the 
virus is under control and there isn't that pressure to have to change. How do you, as this innovation leader, how do you recreate or get that sense of urgency that was kind of a gift to you in your role, but it's going to go away? Yeah, it's a very good point. And there are two things or two ideas I have. The first is to continue to bring outside in perspectives, because in the absence of outside in perspectives of what's happening out there, not only in terms of continued custom, uh, consumer demands, but also in terms of what other companies are doing, you might just fall back into your natural habits. So I have to continue to do that as a good wake-up call. The second is internal. You have to continue to put pressure on the culture of change to continue to cultivate an innovative culture. Easier said than done, but you have to weave it systemically into the culture of the company to make people understand that it's not an option for you to continue business as usual and create the impetus for leaders to be driving change. If you approach those two pronged, it's not easy. I'll be very, very honest. The brutal truth is it's very, very hard to do. I think we've talked in the past that uh, I wrote an article uh, earlier this year, uh, and it's basically uh, says that I don't like the idea of creating a chief innovation officer role in large companies. And it's not that I don't appreciate what you're trying to do, but it seems to me that it makes it too easy for the rest of the leadership team, including the CEO, to make it your problem instead of everyone's problem. I think it'd be better off making you the chief crisis officer. Because if you created crises that people had to react to, then you would have human nature on your side. So how do you think about and get your head around this tension that I describe in that article? Yeah, no, it's a very good point. And the truth be told, embedded in the chief innovation officer role or title is essentially chief crisis officer, right? You're meant to be the person articulating every day the risk of not innovating, the risks of not having the right culture. So yeah, in a way, you're kind of creating a crisis every day. You should be. Like I said, you know, you keep that flame uh, burning. We would all love one day where nobody has the title innovation because it's everybody's job. But we recognize for large companies, incumbents who have the incumbent advantage, who've been around for a long time, you kind of need a foundational catalyst. And the foundational catalyst is that one evangelist, right, who will cultivate an army of evangelists and get people going slowly but surely till you get to that one point where organically it becomes your culture. Uh, in a recent article I saw on LinkedIn, you quoted Nobel Prize winning physicist Dennis Gabor, and he said, the future cannot be predicted, but the futures can be invented. And I love this quote. And you went on to offer some advice as to how you can go about creating teams that can do this. And so I'm reading through the article and I, and I enjoyed it. But there's a couple of points I wanted to tease out and get your reaction to. So the first point you made was, we need to make innovation a priority. And I absolutely agree with this idea. But in the article, you describe coaching people to think about their priorities in terms of what's both present-focused and what's future-focused. And your point is that when you write it down, people will recognize that most of what they're actually doing is present-focused. And so you talk about having people shift more of their focus to future priorities. In my experience, I think if you really want to innovate, you actually only want one focus, and that's on the future. Because if you ask someone to make that balance, the present, which is no matter what we say, if they have present and future priorities, the present ones are going to win out because they're going to be judged on them first. And then you're fighting human nature to say, hey, do both. If I get fired in 12 months for not doing the short-term ones, 
it doesn't matter if I ever get to the one five years or three years from now. So how do you deal with this conflict? Because I love the idea, but I would almost go one step further and just get rid of the first column. It's a very, very good question, and I appreciate you uh, teasing that out because it, it truly is a conflict, right? And I would not profess that uh, everybody does the balance, but there is a, a kind of a, for lack of a better word, kind of a hierarchy of classification. The more senior you get, the more your single focus has to be on that future. If you are at a different level in your career, and that's why I wrote that to kind of span different career levels, but say you're an assistant director. You have to perform in your day-to-day. You got to get the job done, get the train on the rails, no question. But that's no excuse for also not thinking about how can I do this better? As I'm getting the train on the rails or the you know the cargo on the rails, well, may I be thinking, is there another met- method down the road, right? So it's a little more difficult that way because they're judged on the present more often than not. And the excuse is when we talk about strategic thinking, eh, you know, my job is day-to-day. I don't have time for strategy. Right. So I'm forcing that balance. But as you get more and more senior, 70, 80, 90 percent of your job is really that long term focus as the chief strategist. Um, so it's not an easy balance. I'll be I'll be honest. It's something that requires some skill and dexterity. It's almost like sometimes you got to learn how to use both hands in case you break one. Uh, but nobody does that. <laughs> right. Which is kind of what you're suggesting. You know, my my my, my pushback is at, at certain levels figure out how to do both. There's the perform and the transform. I would say, as we say, at Northwest Mutual and our CEO is very, very uh, insistent on that. Leaders need to perform today, but also be thinking about transform. You talk about molding experts into innovators. And I get the idea, but you know, we used to say the problem with experts is that they know what's not possible. If I want to solve a problem that's existed before, I want an expert. If I want someone to do something that's never been done before, the last thing I want is an expert because the generalists or the people that are outside their comfort zone, when you can't rely on your expertise, all of a sudden you're forced to really solve the problem and you have to really get at what really matters. And so would you be better off letting the experts do their thing? And instead, recruiting completely different people, the most unqualified people in one area would could potentially be the best to disrupt it. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I love this dialogue. Uh, so he, here's my here's my response to that. Expertise aside, I think it comes down, in my opinion, to a definition of innovation. And I define innovation as the opportunity or the process of creating new value for clients through a repeatable process. So that's number one. Number two is innovation as we think about it doesn't have to be this long-term big picture thing always i put them into two categories there's sustaining innovation and there's disruptive innovation and if i'm an expert or if i'm a non-expert in my day-to-day there are opportunities for me to find how to make what i do today better and i can define that as innovating sustaining innovation polishing my existing products and services is sustaining innovation which can be done in your day-to-day as you're performing. You're like, huh, I got to change out this wheel and put something else different. But then there are others who are thinking about completely transforming the car, to use a car analogy, and really thinking about, actually, it's not even a car anymore. They're disrupting the industry and mobility. And there's room and place for those two things. So 
I think it comes down fundamentally to what type of innovation or what bucket of innovation do you fall in? And in the here and now, I could be sustaining improvements that honestly, Chuck, you may like because it's sustaining. And that's what you want. You don't want to try the new thing. <laughs> now I'd like to ask you a series of questions that, you know, how do you think about innovation and entrepreneurship? And you've already given us some incredible perspectives. If you look at your career, do you believe your successes come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? That's a very good question. I think my successes have come from being open, frankly, to opportunities to experience failure. And I use the word being open because, you know, sometimes you don't know if something is going to be a success or a failure. But when you're open to that, that means you're open to disrupting yourself. And in fact, proactively, you seek that. In my case, I have done that. I mean, gosh, you know, going from being a securities lawyer to now running innovation, people would say that's ripe for potential failure, right? Uh, so I would say success has come from being open to those opportunities that may very well lead to failure and taking a leap of faith. So let me ask you a little bit further on that. So you're in the claims business, you're running a core part of the company, and you get asked to take on this innovation role. I mean, you've already obviously made one big shift from lawyer to insurance expert, but still, this one, it might work, but it's more likely it's not than otherwise, right? It's by definition, you're taking on this new challenge. How did you get your head around it? Because I think most people in your situation wouldn't have done it. Yes, absolutely. So I'll be honest, every new opportunity is daunting, particularly when you're waiting to become an expert in what you're doing. And boy, you got to move to this next step. But in terms of my mindset, I was ready for that because, frankly, when I headed up claims, I kept thinking about the jobs to be done, what the consumers want. And I kept thinking about what we did was mostly transactional, people coming on claim, we pay their claim and we move on. And I said, no, we can't keep doing it that way. So I started thinking about this through an innovative lens. So it became natural for me to think about what we needed to do for our clients in the moment of truth. The reason we exist is to be there for them in their worst possible times. And I observed that it was very transactional. So I already had the innovator's mindset, and I was already working a little bit with the innovation team that when it became time to go there, I was like, gulp, wow, how am I going to do this at scale? But it was natural to go there and accelerate that thought process uh, within the rest of the industry. So I don't want to suggest it was easy by any means. It was very hard. Uh, but the mindset is the most important thing. So when you're building teams, and you've obviously built teams of all different types with different missions within Northwestern Mutual and others, but if you're focusing on innovation specifically, what do you think is most important to a team's success? Having a culture of the brutal honesty, even if it makes people uncomfortable, or instead starting with an environment of psychological safety where you really try to adjust conversations to make sure people are comfortable and then avoid confrontations? Yeah. So good question. And it relates back to what we talked about, which is how do you light that flame and how do you keep it burning? You can't do that without the brutal truths. So it's not about psychological safety. You have to essentially, as you put it, be kind of the chief crisis officer, not that you're crying wolf, but really communicate the risks of not doing something. And I think I gave three examples that are you know, common with incumbents. There's some degree of uh, what I'll call hubris. you got to dislodge that hubris. There's this notion of um, the unshakable success that you've had and invincibility. 
all those things require the brutal truth that what got us here may not get us to where we need to be. And trying to, you know, psychological safety is not going to work in that regard. You have to create a bit of a burning platform or simmering platform that moves people to action. Well, I'm looking forward to this next question because as someone who is trained as a securities lawyer who's not doing that anymore, I, I can't wait to hear what your answer is. So how do you describe your personal approach to problems? Are you more likely to think outside the box, build a better box, or set the box on fire? You know, frankly, I would say you have to be prepared to set the box on fire. And that depends on the circumstance. Everything we do in innovation has to be driven by the human problem. It could be based on the insights I'm getting from what the human problem is, I got to set the box on fire and completely rethink the potential solution. I call that the leapfrog. But all those things, I can't shove or we can't shove solutions onto consumers. It has to be based on problems we know consumers have. So should I think outside of the box and improve incrementally or should I set the box on fire or depend on the nature of the human problems? There's some human problems that eh, you exist solutions, even patch it here and they are not going to fix you. You got to light the box on fire. If you look at your personal success or how you've made decisions both in your personal and your professional life, does one of those stick out as kind of your go-to approach? I would say it's been mostly thinking outside of the box. In some instances, I have set the box on fire. From my own personal career, I have had to think about what may be the disruptions in terms of securities law or being a lawyer, and how do you, I'm going to use this word, how do you future-proof your career by giving yourself optionality? And that means you have to think outside of the box. What does an operations professional have to do with a securities lawyer? Well, you're an independent contributor as a lawyer. You're able to run large teams. You're able to think outside of the box in terms of lean you know, methodology to run operations and now innovation. And so my career has been thinking outside of the box, motivated by the fact that you may very well fail, but it's better than just psychological safety and the comfort that you know of what you've uh, what you've been doing for years. So when you're evaluating talent for a new team member, what are the one or two must-have characteristics that you're looking for? Oh, that's a great question. Lots of books, lots of uh, opinions on that. But having been around as long as I have been around, you know, the, the, the kind of three things that jump out at me, frankly. The first, and I know this might sound like a cliche, but based on my background, it's very appropriate. And I call it grit and resilience. It's hard when somebody's sitting in front of you to interview, but you can you can you can decode from their history if they have the grit and the perseverance, the ability to stick to it. Because particularly in innovation, you need that. So grit resilience is a very important thing to assess in talent. The second is emotional quotient, the EQ factor. Lots of people are smart. But can they lead teams? Can they connect with people? You need to have a high degree of EQ to read the tea leaves. Very important. And the last aspect is learning agility. Because if you're going to be an innovator uh, or if you're going to you know, lead teams, I mean, you're going to be throwing new things every day. And how well can you learn? Again, it gets, it gets you outside of your comfort zone. If the, the one thing you know is when you want to perpetuate, then you know, so be it. But those are the three factors uh, that I look to in evaluating talent. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I would say, frankly, the greatest advice I have uh, for aspiring entrepreneurs is uh, comes down to the first thing I said. It's one of the hardest things I can imagine. 
And a lot of it comes down to perseverance, that grit and resilience, because it's not an easy road. And you're going to be throwing all kinds of curveballs, whether it's trying to raise financing, whether it's your business idea, whether it's been told your idea has no legs at all. But what is it going to take for you? I mean, I would assume the hard work is there. I would I would assume the conviction is there. But do you have the stick to itness and the opportunity sometimes to be able to pivot, but still stick with it? I mean, I think that's one of the most defining factors for successful entrepreneurs. They're able to kind of stick the grit, perseverance. So that'll be my advice. You know, Abim, so many of the people that listen to this podcast work in large companies and they aspire to innovate and they could be at all different levels of the organization. And what I often hear is they're frustrated. So I know there's no magic answer, but maybe you could give us the other perspective. You know, you have a very senior role in a very large, successful company. What's the biggest challenge that you have to face each day in trying to innovate there? I think one huge challenge, frankly, is transforming the culture to be more innovative. Again, that might sound like a cliche, and you said a few minutes ago that I wish we could define innovation as just disruptive innovation. For a lot of people, that's a hard, far-reaching kind of aspiration. And if I'm in the trenches and I come up with one sort of good process improvement, to be told that's not innovation could be deflated. You know, it could be like, oh, th thank you. That's, it's nice you did that. But the truth of the matter is, as I described it, innovation is a process of creating new value for your client through a repeatable process. And that person who saw a defect in the process could be the innovate, innovator of the week or the month. That could be hugely engaging. They go back to their desks and tomorrow they're looking for the next thing that they could come up with. And through that, you begin to grow and cultivate an army of innovators that have the ability to really set the box on fire and become those disruptive innovators tomorrow. To grow that kind of culture, it takes really cultivating those seeds very methodically. So the biggest challenge is creating that culture all the way from the bottom, all the way to the top. It takes years to be able to do that. But if you don't create the room for that, the acknowledgement for what people are doing and their ideas, uh, it's very daunting when you, for people to think about disruptive innovation and all the money and resources. And it's like, I just don't know what it's like. And I, I don't, I can't do it. And people just shut down. It's back to normal. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Best of luck in your journey. I'm sure we'll keep in touch. I am so excited about the things you're taking on. I think it's a great, it's just such an interesting problem because you have such a successful company today, but you're trying to figure out how do we get ahead of it before we're forced to. And I wish you the best of luck and thanks for being here. Thank you for shining a spotlight on this. I appreciate what you do. It's, uh, it's fantastic to be, uh, to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thanks to Abim for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his perspective on what it's really like to lead innovation in a large company. As he said, the chief innovation officer role is really the chief crisis officer. You should be creating a crisis every day to keep the flame of innovation burning. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far. While we're proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you'll tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com. Thanks for joining us on this journey and let's go change the world.